G'day everyone, and welcome to My Union Road in ABA. This is a podcast to chronicle the progress towards a new enterprise bargaining agreement at Monash University and is brought to you by members of the Monash branch of the NTEU. We're here to take the old agreement and hashtag change it. And unlike our namesake, my dad wrote a porno, do everything we can to avoid being fucked in the process. Those involved with the podcast would like to acknowledge that it is being recorded on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nations, on whose lands we live, teach, and work. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians and elders, past and present, and to the continuation of the cultural, spiritual, and educational practices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Everyone is on Leave episode of the podcast. Both Adam, who you usually hear doing the stats at the start of every episode, and pod daddy Sophie O are on leave at the moment, which has left Kate and I to do both the stats and the editing of the podcast this week. Uh, I promise that for the next one, everyone will be back on board, but um, onto the stats. All right. So it has been 356 days since the expiry of the old enterprise agreement, in which time the VEC has raked in $1,339,628, which is just a phenomenal amount of money, really. Speaking of our VC, there's 44 days until she leaves us for a plum new gig as the 30th governor of Victoria, where she will take a pay cut of around a million dollars a year, but at least from what I can tell, it involves her doing bugger all, and she won't have to worry about scheming to steal wages from thousands of her employees and conspiring to make our lives all around more miserable. And who knows, in her new role as governor, she can technically fire the premier. So maybe that's the job she has her eyes on next. (laughs) So coming back to Monash, this week we want to give a handful of updates about things that have been happening around the place. So the first is the bargaining update. As many of you may have seen in the bargaining update email that was sent out a couple of days ago, in the most recent bargaining meeting, we officially rejected the university's pay offer. You might remember that the VC sent out an all-staff email a while back and offered us a 4% pay rise this year and then another 3% in 2024 and 2025. The bargaining team told the university that 4% isn't enough. CPI in Melbourne was 8% last year, meaning that in real terms, our pay went backwards. If it's fine to give the VC a 12% pay rise, they should at least be able to meet our proposal of CPI plus 1.5%. We are fundamental to this place. We are the university and we should have pay rises that reflect that. On other matters in bargaining, progress continues to be slow as the number of things that we are waiting to hear back from the university about continues to grow longer with every passing meeting. They need to stop dragging their feet and start coming to the table with some real meaningful changes that address the fundamental issues that we have raised and the clauses that we have put forward. The last couple of weeks have also seen the continuing trend of the VC's all-staff emails where she communicates things as though they're already agreed upon by everyone, when in reality they're things that HR have just put forward as proposals in bargaining meetings, like the pay offer that we just rejected. This time it was to announce some new jobs. Their offer was 120 new jobs, which isn't nothing, but is a paltry number compared to the 1,000 that we proposed and also compared to the roughly 3,500 casual academic staff at the university. There's also nothing in their proposal about conversion for current casual staff, which is a core part of our proposal. The email is also full of smoke and mirrors to make it look like a much more significant commitment 
than what it actually was by coupling the talk of the 120 full-time positions with the 450 PhD roles, which can be as low as 0.1 full-time equivalent. In other updates, a couple of weeks ago now, we had action outside the library, the the two-hour stop work, specifically targeted to the library as a way of drawing attention to how cooked all of the stuff at the library is. They have lost dozens of staff that have been forced out of their jobs through restructures in the last couple of years and their conditions continue to deteriorate. And we wanted an opportunity to be able to speak to that and to be able to hear from some of the people at the library, one of which Warren, who who got up and, and gave a bit of a speech on the day. We also made a stack of pancakes that we handed out to staff and students. And speaking of students, students once again showed up in big numbers to show solidarity and to demonstrate that they understand much more than university management seems to, that our working conditions are student learning conditions and that those two are fundamentally coupled to one another. Yeah, it's always so great to see students out on the picket line. So thanks to all the students that showed up. And really, the more we push, the more they move. We have seen that with the petition for the pay rise, last year, the level of communication coming out of management about bargaining and the way they feel they're talking around us through all staff emails. If we weren't having an effect, they wouldn't feel the need to do that. So we keep pushing in every way we can at every opportunity that we get. So that's why we do things like coffee stalls, put up posters, and that's why we talk to members. That's why we take industrial action. That's why Tony and I are doing this podcast. That's why we'll all be out in force on open day come August 5th and 6th. It's also why, when necessary, we launch federal court action against the university to try and recover stolen wages. In recent years, this has returned tens of millions of dollars to staff from universities across Australia. Monash is no exception to this, having been forced to repay $8.6 million already in a wage theft case that was spearheaded by the Monash Casuals Network. But that case was the result of only one form of wage theft experienced by Monash employees, stemming from the misclassification of teaching activity. By our account, there's at least three or four other types of wage theft that are in different stages of being investigated by the union, with a cumulative total of potentially many times the amount that Monash has already paid out for its workers. The one thing that is furthest along is the consultations case that we spoke about in the last episode. You may have seen that we've now gotten a verdict in the case and that we won. So to talk us through the verdict, what it means and where we go to next, we have a good comrade, Jacob DeBetz. How you going, Jacob? Want to start off by giving yourself a bit of an intro, who you are, how you came to be involved with the NTU and that kind of thing? Absolutely. Um, Thank you for having me, um, Kate and Tony. Um, My name's Jacob. I'm an industrial officer and lawyer based at the um, NTU's Victorian division. The NTU is my old union when I was a student and staff member at the University of Melbourne and the law school. And I was fortunate enough after working in the private sector to get a job as an industrial officer at the union a couple of years ago. And a large part of my job has been strategic disputes and litigation. And perhaps unsurprisingly, that has largely revolved around casual underpayments in the university sector. So Monash is just one of the many cases that are running at the moment, but it's probably been the weirdest. I can say that with some some confidence that it's it's been the weirdest. It is really confusing and I find it really confusing as well. So like with that in mind, Jacob, can you give us a recap of why we were at the Fair Work Commission in the first place? Yes. So... As you both know, as as, um, people who were involved in the initial organising effort around this consults issue, in late 2021, some of our casual members began talking about the fact that they were being directed to undertake 
student consultation, but not being separately paid for it. The university was saying inconsistent things, but um, for a lot of our activists, they were essentially being told that this consultation, which was scheduled in advance and often happening on days other than when classes were being delivered, was work that was associated with tutorial delivery. These members organized around that issue, held workplace meetings, eventually um, ran it up the the flagpole to the boffins in the union um, to have a look at what the enterprise agreement required university to do. And we agreed with the casuals that this work should be separately paid. We worked with those casuals to collate evidence, basically put a formal demand to the university to back pay staff for work, which was unpaid. And we said represented wage theft and the university didn't, uh, didn't take that opportunity to um, resolve this issue. What a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) So in September last year, we filed a federal court case, basically seeking for this money to be back paid, but also seeking some fairly significant penalties against the university because in the union's view, these breaches of the agreement were systemic and serious and represented pretty spicy conduct that ought to be penalized. So we made that application and right away the university engaged in what I'll diplomatically call creative tactics um, in response to that application. Firstly, they filed a dispute in the commission, um, which basically sought to require the Fair Work Commission to construe the relevant provisions of the agreement. They eventually abandoned that application after we filed some interlocutory applications seeking for it to be struck out. And then they landed on a different application under otherwise obscure provision of the Fair Work Act, Section 217, which allows parties to apply to the commission to vary agreements which are ambiguous or uncertain. This was quite a novel tactic. Ordinarily, 217 applications are relatively boring. They're for things like where parties use words in an agreement that don't make a lot of sense or are internally inconsistent or there's cross-referencing errors. And very often those applications are made by consent of both parties. What Monash attempted to do here represented quite a radical application of that provision because they were seeking to retrospectively change the agreement in such a way that it would knock out one half of our federal court proceedings. So they were seeking to insert a new provision in the agreement which stated for the avoidance of doubt, the university could direct people to undertake scheduled consultation within a week of tutorial delivery, and that that was not something that they had to pay staff separately for. So it was basically, they read our federal court application and then sought to insert words that would get rid of that or or neutralize that application as it related to that enterprise agreement. So it would have knocked out about one half of our federal court claim. So what ended up being the result of their creative application of the law? So thankfully, they were not successful. Um, They were not able to persuade the Fair Work Commission to retrospectively vary the agreement. It was the case if they had been successful really could have been quite catastrophic for workers and unions across the country. We all read the newspapers and see literally every day there's another large corporate institution or public institution which has admitted to underpaying its staff sometimes in the order of hundreds of millions of dollars. So we were pretty fucking scared (laughs) what it would mean, Um, but we were able to successfully marshal enough evidence to demonstrate that it would not be appropriate in all the circumstances for the commission to exercise its discretion to vary an agreement, which it did find was ambiguous or uncertain. Um, So that, that part of the case, we didn't win. 
but the commission wrote a relatively strident probably isn't the right word, but it was a fairly strong decision coming out against the university's application. It had regard to a number of variables, including the fact that none of the university employees who were affected by the application supported it. Um, so there were lots of procedural uh, issues that had to be resolved between the parties and that they had their own sort of procedural hearings, which needed to, uh, which were dedicated to dealing with those issues. But all, all staff had to be contacted who were affected by the application. About 200 of them responded resisting the application. No employees supported it. The university wasn't able to provide any evidence that there was a common intention that the parties didn't want this work to be compensated in the way that the union said that it needed to. It had regard to the fact that bargaining is underway for a new agreement. There's sort of an implication that it would be inappropriate for the commission to intervene and retrospectively change an agreement when that's being discussed between the parties. Notes that the timing of an application for variation, including whether it, there's been a delay relevant to whether discretion should be exercised. And probably most importantly, and, and probably something that hasn't been picked up as much as it should have in the commentary around this decision, the university was arguing for the commission to have an unfettered power to change enterprise agreements retrospectively. And the commission comes out quite strongly in saying that that is not a power that the commission has. But, but just to unpack what that argument would have meant, what the university was saying should be the power of the commission, that if there's an agreement that's unclear, the commission should basically have carte blanche power to change workers' entitlements. It's quite an extraordinary argument. The kind of thing that you might expect from like Woodside or you know the coke industries in america but not something that you would expect a public institution like a university to be arguing so sorry that's a long-winded answer um but yeah that's that's what the commission said about their arguments and that hopefully will discourage other employers from um, attempting to adopt these creative tactics yeah absolutely that's an astonishing argument that's being put forward by monash and also, just as a side note as well, if we have any of those 200 people that wrote um, letters to the commission to uh, support the union side, just like to say thank you. That, you know, was a really big help to have 200 people supporting the union side and not have anyone submit anything in favour of the university side, you know, really, really helped the case. So, you know, thank you to everyone who did that. Uh, so, Jacob, where do we go from here? The university can still... Appeal the decision, right? Correct. So they have 21 days from the date of judgment to decide whether or not they want to lodge an appeal. So the decision was issued on the 7th of June. So they have until the 28th to lodge that appeal. We haven't heard from the university since that time. They haven't given an indication about whether or not they expect to exercise that right. Um, it is probably worth noting that it's very cheap to appeal and very often employers do appeal these kinds of decisions. So we'll know in a week as to whether or not they're going to exercise that option. So we'll probably wait until that happens and then we will write to the federal court and seek that the matter be brought on for the substantive union application. And then that federal case, it's, it's not like a, a, a result will come quickly from that, is it? Not like we're suddenly at the finish line now that we're potentially, fingers crossed, hopefully done with the Fair Work Commission part of this. That's right. Yeah, federal court litigation ordinarily takes more than a year in simple cases. So we wouldn't expect to have an outcome in that case for possibly until 2025. So that will be a, a long slog. We'll in the interim continue to encourage the university to settle the matter 
it's totally within their power to conduct an audit of all of these unpaid consultation hours and pay it back. They've done it before in relation to other forms of underpayment and they can do it again here. That would obviously be best for the staff. It would be a better use of the university's money than continuing to spend it on, on lawyers to, you know, put these sorts of disputes in against their own staff. But we expect that we will be back in the federal court and we'll have to fight it all the way. Um, both, and, the, and the upside of that is if we win, we'll not only get the money, we've got a chance of being able to seek penalties against the university, which is a really important normative tool that, you know, as a union, we need to hold them accountable to. So that's the silver lining if they don't settle it. And so that would take the form of, of a fine or something like that, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's a civil penalty um, provision, breaching an enterprise agreement. So thank you, Jacob, for coming and explaining all of that to us. Um, if we're still in bargaining in 2025, when the federal court verdict comes down, we'll have you back on to explain that to us as well. Um, but I pray to God that that is not the case. Maybe we'll be back bargaining for the next agreement. Thank you for having me. Um, so that's it for us for this episode. Um, I just want to end quickly with a pitch for people to get in touch with us for a couple of things. If anybody out there listening that is a member has ideas for what kind of industrial actions would work well within their particular parts of the university, so within your particular workspace or particular work group, if you think there's something that would be particularly effective, if you could reach out to us and let us know, that would be great. Um, and also, if you might be interested in coming on to talk about what your job looks like in your part of the university. If that is something you might be interested in, get in touch with us um, via the email. Yeah, so you can get in touch with us uh, with the email address myunionroadandeba at gmail.com. And as always, if you have any questions about bargaining or the EA, the Fair Work Commission case or the Federal Court case, uh, just shoot us an email and we will answer your questions on the podcast. Thank you. That's it for this week, everyone. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. All right, folks, that's it for this episode. Thanks to Kate, Danny, Adam, Bernard, and Pod Daddy Sophio for all the work they've put into this, and we'll catch you next time.